hear me? Hello, Bill. So uh, we are here about to start uh, the event. Let me explain to the audience that uh, originally we plan uh, Bill Kovacic to be with us uh, for the presentation, but due to uh, a last-minute personal problem, could not make it. So he will give his presentation uh, through uh, from the U.S. and then we'll have a panel discussion. Uh, so. Um, uh, Bill is a professor at, of global competition law and policy at George Washington University, and uh, he was also uh, in the past uh, the chairman of U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission, and we are very happy to have him with us uh, uh, presenting his ideas on emerging trends in competition policy, adopting uh, um, a U.S. Uh, perspective, but also commenting on European perspective, try to bring a, a global perspective on this uh, issue. And then we have, uh, I have the pleasure to have here with me uh, uh, three experts of the field. Uh, in alphabetical order, we have Christina Cafara, who her train is late, but she is expected to join soon. She's the vice president and head of co European competition practice at Charles River Associate. We have Antonio Capobianco, uh, who is the head of competition, uh, senior competition expert at OECD. And uh, we also uh, be glad to have Chris uh, De Kaiser, the director of policy and strategy at uh, DigiCom, European Commission, to provide the Euro uh, European Commission perspectives. So uh, let's begin with uh, Bill's presentation, and then we'll go to uh, the comments by the panel. Thank you, uh, and Bruegel very much for allowing me to join the panel and to participate from a from a distance uh, as I learn about uh, orthopedic surgery and medical science uh, in a practical way. But uh, thank you very much for the for the honor of participating, and my apologies to uh, my three colleagues, Christina, Antonio, and Chris, for not being there uh, at the table with you. Uh, I want to talk uh, just the topic by talking about the modern debate about trust busting and the broad discussion that's taking place today about whether competition law should engage in a more robust program of dissolving existing levels of concentration. And as Giorgio said, I'm, I'm going to speak mainly from the point of view of the U.S., but to begin with a little context. Uh, if we were to go back 40 years ago, when I first started working for the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, uh, we would see unmistakably that the U.S. system was extraordinarily intervention-minded. Uh, among other things, in the late 70s, the two U.S. agencies were running cases to break up the following sectors, oil, cereal, computers, telecommunications, photocopiers, bread, automobile tires, and others. There has never been, nor to this point, has there been since a more robust collection of abusive dominance cases and collective dominance cases to restructure large parts of American industry. Uh, today, uh, things are much different. Uh, the European Union system of control regarding dominant firms is globally preeminent and unmistakably is the center of gravity for policymaking in this field. And the US system, uh, by contrast, certainly in modern commentary is portrayed as being desperately inadequate. Uh, a significant contribution to this inadequacy literature uh, appeared uh, uh, within the past month in The Economist, uh, the insert trust busting in the 21st century, which offers a very gloomy view about the performance of the US system. 
So the U.S. system has gone from being uh, extraordinarily active and intervention-minded to, as the narrative goes, relatively passive. And without question, uh, the setting of global standards, the influence in the 130-plus competition systems around the world, first and foremost, uh, arises in Brussels. Uh, the European Commission is unmistakably the capital of the competition policy world in this area, and I would assert more generally uh, across the, when we take the whole portfolio of competition policy matters, Brussels is the world headquarters. Uh, I want to pose three questions uh, about uh, the modern debate. I want to ask what happened, uh, especially to the U.S. system. I then want to ask why did it happen, and last, to think a bit about what the future U.S. role will be globally. In doing this, I'm giving you only my views, not those to the Competition and Markets Authority, where I sit as the non-executive uh, uh, director on their board. Uh, but I am uh, deeply influenced by what I've learned uh, in my five years there uh, about the development of standards globally in this field. Uh, let's start with what happened. Uh, you would think this would be the simplest and easiest element of the discussion to address. And the simple questions would be, what did the U.S. agencies actually do? What cases did they file? What cases did they consider but reject? Uh, the simple question of what happened, uh, if, this were, uh, if this were a football match, we, we wouldn't be evaluated whether anyone scored goals. We're just asking whether they played the game. We're just asking not whether they played well or played poorly. We really want to know, did they show up on the field and was the match itself actually played? It turns out to be a lot harder than one thinks. Uh, Here's some samples from recent commentary that, that simply talk about trends in what happened. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Professor Tim Wu in the New York Times uh, in mid-May uh, have the following observation. Enforcement of the anti-monopoly laws has fallen. Between 1970 and 1999, the United States brought about 15 monopoly cases each year. Between 2000 and 2014, that number went down to just three. I assume that Tim and Senator Blumenthal are talking about abusive dominance cases here, uh, but that's a pretty stark change uh, if that actually if that actually happened. Uh, the Economist, uh, I suspect, drawing upon the Blumenthal and Wu piece, comes up with a slight variation about a month later. Yet, if anything, America needs a more activist approach to antitrust. In 1970 to 1999, regulators brought an average of 16 cases per year. In 2000 to 2014, that number fell below three. The Economist in the in the in the trust busting uh, insert from mid-November has a chart on page 10 that's titled "All Quiet on the Western Front." And the subtitle is number of cases brought by competition regulators against firms abusing dominance. And this is the US competition regulatory experience from the period 2000 to 2017. Uh, the graph shows a line flat at zero on the horizontal axis. Uh, I take that to be zero. Uh, they offer uh, as a source the paper by professors Gutierrez and Philippon, uh, which you're familiar with. Uh, but here again, the economist uh, doesn't go uh, to less than three a year. Uh, this chart shows the agency simply walking away entirely from this area of enforcement. Uh, so. Here's the basic depiction, uh, a, a significant change in enforcement practice from an earlier period. Well, was it zero? Um, 
I want to start by suggesting to you that all of these numbers are bonkers. Uh, these numbers have the quality of saying that the capital of France is Lyon. Maybe Lyon should be a good place to get a good meal, but verifiably it is not. Uh, that happens to be Paris. Uh, the, the number zero in the Economist article. Um, a few cases that the FTC brought in this era that are abusive dominance cases, Bristol-Myers Squim, Unical, Rambus, Intel, AbbVie, and most recently Qualcomm, they just disappear. Um, when I read research like this and I see these kinds of results, um, first, I find it dismaying. Second, I find it a bit bewildering. What have I missed? Uh, but last, if we can't come to a basic agreement about what took place, simply was the match played at all, we're not in a very good position to start a more normative assessment about whether or not what took place was good. Uh, to go back to, uh, to, to Tim's uh, uh Tim's, uh, Tim's slide, uh, I, I like to pick on people I like, uh, and Tim's one of them. Um, between 70 and 99, the U.S. brought about 15 monopoly cases a year. Um, I know that from 81 to 88, during the Reagan administration, uh, the total Justice Department output of uh, monopolization or attempted monopolization cases was three. Um, the FTC's number was roughly the same. Uh, you can't get to these numbers no matter how you manipulate the data and go about making calculations. That's what The Economist relied about on. And again, The Economist chart from mid-November puts the number at zero. So a, we have an epidemic failure at the moment uh, simply to have a simple understanding of what actually took place. Um, this might seem to be mundane, but I see it as very fundamental uh, if we can't even come to a basic agreement of what took place. Why this kind of variation in uh, counting cases? Uh, there's a poor reporting of the enforcement agenda and agencies don't do a terribly good job of presenting data. And I have great sympathy for any researcher who's trying to assemble reliable data in any one agency about what's taken place. Um, to do it in a reliable way almost requires you to build a data set by hand. It's, uh, it's enormously frustrating and difficult. Uh, that certainly stands in the way of coming up with good numbers. I suspect it's a reason why shortcuts and proxies tend to predominate here. Um, second, uh, there's a path-dependent element to the narrative. Uh, if your narrative depends on showing this kind of stark and staggering change in behavior, um, and once you've adopted the narrative, it's, it's hard to depart from it. Um, and we see this approach appearing in so many academic papers, in the work of so many journalists. Um, if, the, if the theme is the US simply took a walk, disappeared, um, it's hard to change that by saying, well, not quite. Um, and in a couple of instances, maybe not quite at all. Uh, I don't doubt that the level of activity from the time I was at the FTC first time in the 1970s to the present has declined significantly but it never went to zero. And to suggest that this is the actual path of experience, I think really gets in the way of analyzing and addressing the basic question of where we are and where we're going. Now, a last explanation related to the second is that um, once, if, you, if, if your story depends on showing such a stark and extraordinary difference in behavior, it's hard to walk away from it once you've started going down that path.
I do think, as a footnote uh, for Antonio and his colleagues, uh, this is an area where international bodies could do a lot of good in informing the debate, which is to promote agencies, to coax agencies in the direction of more standardization, better disclosure and reporting activity. Basic information such as when was the case started, what was the subject, uh, sub subsequent procedural history, and what happened. Uh, it would allow us to get a much more reliable snapshot year by year of what actually taken place. I realize that's a, a daunting undertaking even within a single jurisdiction, but I, I do assert that one of the basic difficulties in having a meaningful conversation on this topic is that the data is so bad and some of it reported is just so erroneous that it's not reliable. Uh, why did changes happen? There were changes. Uh, let me give you a couple of explanations. First, uh, the ultimate bad guy, Bork did it. Uh, the evil eminence uh, hijacked the system and hasn't given it back on behalf of the Chicago School. Uh, the Economist insert uh, in a long essay in, no in mid-November uh, dwells on this theme. This learned helplessness about enforcement reflects the tricky legacy of Robert Bork, an American scholar and judge who wrote The Antitrust Paradox, a deeply influential book published in 1978. That's the root of all evil. The Antitrust Paradox bundled together other thoughts that Bork had developed at an earlier age. But this is the manifesto that ruined the system. And the story goes, the US regime has been hostage to it ever since. Second explanation. The agencies are cowardly and they're content. They have no guts and they are placid in the pursuit of non-interventionist programs adopted over the past 40 years. Again, The Economist comes back to this theme in mid-November. When you come into contact with the competition establishment in the rich world, which I take it includes places like Brussels, regulators, academics, lawyers, the cruelest comparison is with financial watchdogs before the 2008-2009 crash. So here, to stop at this point, the competition agencies are as every bit as blind as the financial regulators were before the crash. They're content with their existing thought that they're doing a pretty good job, but they're so badly asleep at the switch that they don't see the horrible train wreck that's coming. Most competition authorities are unwilling to be held accountable for the level of competition in the economy. Indeed, they go further and insist that it's impossible to measure. So here are the cowardly and content competition agencies saying, we're doing a great job. What we do is really important, but there's no way to measure my effectiveness. They sound like university faculty members talking about teaching effectiveness. Can't measure what I do, but what I do is really good. Third explanation, um, they've been captured. And here again, The Economist last month punctuates this point. Competition regulators have been captured. And this is mainly a discussion of the US at this point. Competition regulators have a dated view of the economy and in official forums about how to reform competition policy, lawyers, that means lots of you, acting for private firms are given undue weight. What about these narratives? Chicago takeover, cowardly content agencies, and captured agencies. Cautions. First, what is striking in looking at the Economist essay is that you will see nothing about the modern Harvard School. Indeed, in many of the narratives that pose the Chicago takeover, you see nothing whatsoever about this other major strain of thought 
that shaped the U.S. system. And to not understand the role that Philip Arita, Don Turner, and Steve Breyer played in that process is not to apprehend how the U.S. evolved and why its system in many ways is badly cramped. I don't know how many people in the room that we have today in Brussels could pick Phil Arita out of a lineup. But for decades, he was the leading lecturer and writing on competition policy. He and Don Turner, his co-author and their principal disciple, Justice now Justice Stephen Breyer, expressed great anxiety about the U.S. system of private rights of action. And their basic thesis was that in close cases involving matters of abusive dominance, private rights of action U.S. style, class actions, juries, mandatory trebling, one-way fee shifting, joint and several liability, contingent fees, all of these things overdeterred. And their injunction to judges was raise the liability standards to more demanding level levels to filter out private suits. This has spilled over into the government's cases. And I offer the FTC's Rambus case as an example. As you know, the FTC prosecuted Rambus unsuccessfully for its alleged misbehavior in a standard setting uh, uh, process. And the European Commission obtained, attained a significant positive settlement in the same case. The FTC found liability, but it lost in the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals decision rejecting the FTC case relied crucially on two Supreme Court decisions that were predicated on setting permissive standards as a way of filtering out overreaching by private litigants. The FTC was bound by these decisions. It had no success in saying, we are not the trouble damage litigant. We represent the government of the United States. So this Harvard School concern about administrability, overreaching by the system of private rights, Arita and Turner's strong view that non-economic goals had no role to play in competition law, Arita in particular said, ignore the egalitarian strain of US competition policy history. This school has had as powerful a role in shaping doctrine. And what it means is that if you don't address these concerns about private rights of action, if you only swap out Chicago views with more pro-enforcement notions, if you don't address this basic concern about the institutional foundations of the US system, the system's not likely to change. And to say Chicago, Chicago, Chicago is to miss at least half of what drives the US system. Why is that so popular? I think there is a popularity among some commentators in talking about Bork and Chicago almost obsessively because there's a certain craziness that seems inherent in the position they've taken. These guys are extremists. And if you want to position your own system as being more neutral or sensible, if you want to position your own view as being more neutral and central, it helps to have an extreme polar distant position that you can contrast yourself to. What about cowardice and contentment? Well, one of the themes in the Economist article is that competition agencies, when asked, how do we know it works? How do we know your system is effective? Just run in the other direction. And again, like the hapless academic in the classroom says, I'm a great teacher, but you can't measure how great I am. Take it from me. I'm terrific. Well, 
so much of the modern effort of competition policy has been focusing on impact evaluation. This critique ignores how for roughly the past 20 years, the question of effectiveness and measurement has appeared more and more prominently on the agenda of what agencies do. It's been on the agenda of the OECD competition committee meetings. It's been the subject of a rich and developing literature that academics have de developed to test the efficacy of competition policy enforcement. And significantly, the agencies in many instances have been encouraging this. Um, the critique that John Quoka famously has written about merger policy draws heavily on data sets that the FTC decided voluntarily to put in the public domain starting in the previous decade. Thus, agencies in a sense have been calling in fire on their own position by saying, let's have a fuller and more robust examination of what we're doing and whether it works. This development doesn't square at all with the image of agencies running away from the basic question, how do we know it works? What about capture? I suspect all of us on a regular basis usefully can look at the mirror and ask, what are my motives? Why do I do what I do? And if I purport to serve a broader public interest, am I actually doing that? That's a healthy question for all of us to ask on a regular basis. Fair point. If you want to, you can tell a capture and public and private interest story, a public choice story about just about all of us. Private sector, what's the caricature? They worship money. Government, public sector, what do they worship? Power for its own sake. Academics and journalists, they crave attention more than most people want food itself. So at one level, you can throw stones at all of our glass-filled houses and ask, what are we engaged in? Maybe it's just our racket to advance all of these private interest notions behind the operation of the system. So to say capture and capture in a sense makes an important point, but in another sense, it's meaningless unless we look far more carefully at what individuals have done and at the strength of their ideas. A problem with the capture story is that it doesn't explain at all when you look through the modern history of U.S. enforcement, extraordinary periods of activism by individuals with the strongest private bar connections. I'd simply offer the FTC's program from 1970 to 1975, where the FTC launched its own remarkable set of cases involving collective dominance in the breakfast cereal industry, in the petroleum refining industry, a challenge to Xerox's dominance in plain paper photocopiers, and many other significant cases. Those were all initiated during the chairmanship of individuals who had come first and foremost out of the private bar and had spent most of their career there. So what were they doing bringing these cases that basically cast aside all of the arguments one would have made on behalf of their former clients and instead stepped on the accelerator and pushed the agencies outward? It's hard to establish when you go period by period that the capture case really explains what's going on. Are these hypotheses to be taken seriously? A Chicago takeover, cowardly content agencies, captured agencies, of course, these are reasonable questions to ask, but these hypotheses are advanced with such confidence 
and such certainty, almost moral certainty, that it causes discontent on my part when I see how it just doesn't explain what's taken place in so many cases. What about the future? Uh, why did change happen? Better agency disclosure would help us understand why things happened the way they did. The Obama administration, certainly the president coming in in 2009, you know, promised a great revival of efforts to address dominant firm conduct. The FTC had a fabled investigation of Google and closed the file. The FTC has said very little about why it did that. Uh, if you take a look at Tim uh, Wu's recent provocative book, The Curse of Business, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age, Tim has a wonderful tour through modern competition history. He does not talk about his time at the FTC when the FTC was pursuing Google and decided to close the file. For those who were there under conditions in which the FTC had the votes, it had the dream team, why did it let Google walk away? The FTC's closing statement is terribly obscure, hardly informative. It would help to understand better the causes of the change to have better disclosure. Similarly, when you look at DOJ from 2009 to 2016, you see many individuals who had prominent enforcement roles at the antitrust division in that period writing new papers that say the system ought to do more. The question one might ask is when you have very bright, highly motivated, and by so many measures accomplished individuals with their actual hands on the controls, why didn't you do more yourselves? What happened? The DOJ output of abusive dominance cases, I think you know, depending on how you count them as two or three, they are not terribly dramatic. The showcase is a, an abusive dominance case predicated on exclusive dealing for a hospital in Wichita Falls, Texas. Lovely town, Wichita Falls, but it's not exactly the Microsoft case it's not exactly the headline capturing cases. Why was it so difficult? What were the institutional features that held you back? Better explanation by the US agencies of what they did and what they did not do would help a lot to understand what actually took place and why change occurred. Closing thoughts on what the US role will be in the future. Part of it depends on pending litigation. Uh, the FTC is running a couple of very important doctrinally significant cases that could move the needle on the US system and bring the US much more directly back into the global debate about standards. If you want to have influence in the international environment, you can't do it unless you're running cases. Running cases and saying, these are the good cases and this is why. If you're not running cases, you don't have credibility in the global debate. The FTC Qualcomm case is a case that could provide that kind of credibility. A second factor is the FTC DOJ relationship. The two agencies do not have a combined plan for how to develop doctrine in this area. They are going in notably different directions on IP related matters, SSOs, the role of IP in competition law. If that relationship is fractured, if there is no common program, it's going to be the FTC that will be the mechanism for an expansion of the US system because of its combined role as a privacy regulator, a consumer protection regulator, a competition agency, 
an administrative court that can adjudicate cases and a markets regime that allows us to get a lot of information. If there's going to be a major change in the abuse of dominance framework in the US in the near future, it's going to come from the FTC. Last, the biggest hurdle, the courts are deeply imbued with the Chicago and Harvard perspectives that discourage expansion of the system without a prolonged period of appointments that change the courts right up to the Supreme Court. And that will take a long time to shift the intellectual balance and the philosophy. The only basic hope for change will be this kind of FTC effort to use its litigation authority to expand the frontier, or it comes back to new legislation that is extremely difficult in the US system to obtain notwithstanding the debate about whether the U.S. system should push outward. So the foreseeable future, what is likely to be the U.S. role, it's going to come mainly in the direction of FTC litigation efforts with a handful of matters. And does new leadership, including the Joe Simons-led Federal Trade Commission, Joe, by the way, is the one who prosecuted the Rambus case. Joe had a very active and significant abusive dominance program at the FTC when he was head of the Bureau of Competition, does the FTC choose to port more of these matters into the pipeline? Without a litigation program, the U.S. voice will largely be mute in internationally, and it means that the voices of others, notably the European Commission, will be absolutely preeminent. Thank, Thank you. Bill, thanks so much for this amazing uh, presentation. Uh, the broad message uh, that I got is that um, it is not a matter of principles for the divergent application of uh, competition policy, but it is a matter of enforcement. And uh, as you clearly explained to us, providing also some very striking statistics, it is the under-enforcement that we observe in the US that uh, it is uh, a problem uh, which we need to solve. And um, I think you went perfectly into uh, the uh, different explanations, and uh, it was very insightful, uh, the explanations you provided. And I keep uh, what you said. In order to really be able to change this, we need to uh, see what are the institutional foundations and how to change them. Um, having this, um, uh, I mean, uh, a tremendous analysis on the US side, I would like to turn now to uh, European side. Uh, as um, Bill said, uh, the world capital of uh, competition policy is Brussels. Uh, so uh, on the one side, uh, I want uh, some comments on, on from your side on the difference between EU and US. But on the other side, I would like to ask you, um, is in the competition policy in EU, in EU something that it is without challenges, without problems? Are there particular aspects that could be improved and how? So I will start with Christina, then I go to Chris and I will close with uh, Adonio. Thank you, Georgios. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, um, uh, it's a pleasure to listen to Bill, although I missed the first few minutes. You're a star fault. It's always a very hard act to follow Bill, but um, 
I think the, the question of under-enforcement is a fundamental one, which Bill, of course, has uh, explored effectively, as he always does for the US, but it is a question which is being asked very repeatedly, very strongly, also on this side of the Atlantic. I mean, not just at the European Commission level, but if you uh, witness the debate that's going on at the level of national authorities, certainly the UK CMA is very deeply in this reconsideration of the scope and extent of antitrust enforcement. Uh, I think, in, in some sense, these debates where um, I, I, I see many people who are here were at the CRA conference last week, and there was an entire day that sort of looked in various ways at this. And I want to pick up some of the themes because inevitably they, uh, they are very germane to what we're discussing here. I think there are, um, in fact, two main strands in this that often are conflated, but it is important that we also are aware that they are not exactly the same. There is first a growing and ongoing concern about rising concentration and profitability in the economy. This is a debate which was teed up at the CRA conference. Jason Furman, who was instrumental to initiate that debate in the US, was there and gave us an update. Essentially, I think it's hard to resist evidence that there is increasing concentration at a broad level, not at the level of relevant antitrust markets. The measures are broader, but there is greater concentration at various levels in the economy. And this goes hand in hand with other phenomena which have to do with increasing profitability, the division of, of, of uh, rents between ca uh, capital, profit, and labor is, is change, has changed very significantly against, <coughs> against the labor. There is evidence of lower vitality, firm entry, and so on. So there is an underlying broad concern which has to do with uh, concentration increasing. And the question that uh, agencies and commentators are asking themselves is to what extent does antitrust enforcement play a role in all of this? This is not specific to digital, but and, and it's broader. And I think it is a question that needs to be asked more broadly, and, and we are. Intersecting with this, and the reason why it has become also such a, a heated debate, is the entire digital discussion. The anxiety in the public at large, at the level of politicians, is high because it is not just we observe this increasing concentration in high-tech sectors. In fact, it is broader than that. When you look at the work uh, Jan de Locke, for example, was presenting at the conference, it is a broad phenomenon. At the same time, we also know that there is uh, this in, in the, the inevitable, the obvious evidence of, of what's happening to digital markets is playing into this. And uh, there is also very much, very strongly, a sense that uh, uh, these markets are, are, are problematic in their own right. Um, so let me just say what we are not saying in, in terms of digital, because there's always a bit of a, a, a confusion about the, the sort of the concern that comes uh, comes around digital, particularly when you talk to transatlantic uh, friends and colleagues, there is a notion that somehow we in Europe are against digital because we have some form of tech envy. We don't have our own Silicon Valley, so we have to, uh, in some way, be aggressive towards the big American digital companies. Uh, there is certainly a sense that we don't have enough uh, you know, uh, own innovation. If you look at the, for whatever it means, but if you look at the list of unicorns, companies with capitalization above a billion, um, you know, you essentially find Chinese and American companies 
last year, three UK companies. There was nobody from continental Europe, UEA, Indonesia, South Africa, Western Samoa, but nobody from continental Europe. And there are reasons why this is, why we don't have our own equivalent of Silicon Valley. But that said, I think there is no question we are not uh, sort of anxious about this because we don't have our own. We don't also have a problem with digital in general. I don't think we have a problem with Airbnb. We have a problem with specific, specific digital platform. And we understand that they do a lot of great things. We understand the source of their market power. There's this great commentator on these issues, Ben Thompson, who writes strategically, and he has this view that this is really what he calls super aggregation. In the old days, you had monopolies who became monopolies because they control the supply, they control the oil, they control the rails. These days, you have uh, great market power accumulated on the demand side, because what is being offered is good people flock to it. And once you control the demand, then the supply needs to be somehow in it. So all of this is, is, is something we are aware of. We are aware of network effects and concentration being natural in these uh, cases. That being said, I think we were all kind of sold a vision of the digital world as one in which there would be um, Overtaking, there would be disruptive innovation uh, leading to monopolies being temporary and then being overtaken by other technologies, uh, multi-homing, uh, all of these factors would actually preempt. Yes, there is a tendency towards concentration, but there, there, there possibly is a correcting mechanism that works. Reality is that we're now discovering that these correcting mechanisms haven't operated for all sorts of behavioral reasons. People are inert or less mobile than one thing, so they don't switch seamlessly when's the last time you downloaded an app yourself without having to do it. So the point being that these markets have tipped. That's what I like to say. It's not as if we're looking into the distance of the world in which you know uh, social networking or search may, with the wind behind, if we're not careful, just tip. They have tipped. There is no alternative right now around the corner. So, and, and beyond that, once you have reached these positions of power, the incentive is very strong to expand and embrace in other areas using your assets, which are data. So all of this is, is very much what faces now, us now. And so how do we tackle it? I think, I think as you know, there is a strong uh, narrative there and a strong set of initiatives that are thinking around how do we sort of, we've been telling each other for years, you know, we've got the tools, all, you know, don't panic. Everyone is fine, everything is, is fine, stay calm and carry on. But there is also a sense that collectively, both as economists, and I'll talk a bit more about this, and as enforcers, we have perhaps just let this whole thing become uh, a little bit too, too dull. And we need to be more creative and imaginative about the ways we do this. So. I'll just tee up this multiple, multiple initiative, the digital panel initiative in the UK, presided over by uh, Jason Furman. There are multiple in Gallis group in the US. There are multiple think tanks and groups of economists and lawyers coming together to rethink this. But just to give you a flavor for what is being discussed, I think there is a major conversation about uh, how to rethink you know, what we do in, in, in mergers, for example, around the whole 
notion that we have essentially presided over a raft of mergers that have been approved without being looked into because of all questions of threshold and so on. But there is a concern that we are not looking into uh, a number of acquisitions that you may colorfully call killer acquisitions. It's a term of art which has been developed in, in pharma but has its application here. To what extent are some of the acquisitions that platforms systematically pursue. I mean, the statistics are very clear. Google bought 200 companies in the last 10 years. Only one was um, was actually reviewed, and so did Facebook. Uh, there is a narrative that says, ah, but we, know that we need to allow them to buy this thing because the innovators are innovating to be bought. Well, that's not quite a complete answer. We understand that innovators don't have the execution capability of a big platform, and therefore there can be benefits to acquiring a startup and developing it. But you know, to develop something to be then partaking into monopoly rents is not necessarily a good incentive for innovation, something that we look at as an efficiency. So, you know, I think we need to think about that. And so there's a big discussion out there amongst economists about, you know, we need to dial up potential competition uh, kind of as a potential theory of harm and looking at these uh, startup acquisitions in a more serious way. Now, I think we're all aware of the huge difficulties that this entails in practice for a regulator. You've got Facebook uh, buying somebody with no revenue and 10 employees. How do you actually decide whether that deal is potentially problematic? But we need to apply ourselves to that question because it can. And when you think about the trade-off, I think we've been far too concerned about type one error then we have about type two error. I personally don't think that anyone is going to die if they're not allowed to buy a company. Alas, the, 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 the damage in the long term for, from foregoing somebody who is potentially a serious player in the competitive arena is much greater to me than somebody having to find an alternative way of going about its own life. Conduct, and I'll be brief, this is an area where of course we have theories of exclusion coming out of our ears and we could have even more. Uh, economists have certainly developed a lot of robust theories of exclusion that we sh sh sort of have, have applied and applied. There has been a bit of a tendency, in my view, to use, to, to ossify that into a bit of a, 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 a template. So, you know, there is a preference for theories of harm that look like Microsoft applications barriers to entry because we know that works, it's solid, it's been approved by the courts, and so we don't need to expand much more than that. I think that particularly in a world in which data is the source of power, we can afford to be a little bit more creative about what we, what we kind of pursue because some of the questions have not to do with necessarily a tie and a leverage, but they have to do with um, some form of exploitation, coercive behavior. When you have that power, you can coerce people and make, make them do things they wouldn't do otherwise. And, and so I think we have provisions, of course I'm not a lawyer, in the treaty about unfairness. This is a narrative that you know, has been very criticized, but I think is, is very live in, in commission talk in Brussels. And I think there is a way of filling it with economic meaning. It is not alien to what we do. Um, and so I, I would uh, think that the economic profession, certainly in my view, has a responsibility for also, without losing sight of the fact that we want robust economic mechanism at the heart of it, uh, helping to develop uh, ways in, in which to look at this creatively. And I think we are certainly at an inflection point and, um, and, and we, need to, we need to sharpen and improve what we're doing. Thank you very much, Christina. I think you had the line uh, in a perfect <coughs> way. How
you started your talk uh, by um, uh, mentioning a fact that we don't have a Silicon Valley. Uh, we don't have the big corporations in the US and in China. And you said that this is for various reasons. I'm wondering, is the way we apply competition policy in the EU a reason why you don't have big corporations? I don't think so. I mean, my view is that the reasons, there was an article by The Economist on this incidentally again two or three months ago, why don't we have a Silicon Valley? I mean, reality has more to do with the nature of funding uh, for, for innovation and the fact that you, we have multiple small national markets where language is an issue. And so, you know, not a, not a mystery why the UK has more unicorns than anyone else, because of course, speaking English, they have a they big U US market. So I'm not pretending to have any sort of deep insight more than was in the Economist article. I don't think enforcement is a reason why we don't have these big things, but it is a fact. Uh, having said that, I don't think that the lack of these uh, corporations motivates remotely the approach to enforcement here. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Christina. And I turn now to Chris. Uh, so uh, if uh, I may just a short question before you start your intervention. There have been many uh, influential competition policy cases uh, by the Digicomp, uh, some of which uh, we see a fundamental difference with US authorities. Uh, well, um, from the discussions with them, did you realize uh, that uh, they have an understanding for the European perspective, or it is a completely different um, uh, perspective and um, there is a big gap between the two? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Maybe uh, just reacting to Christina, I was very happy to hear that you say that a uh, new situation need not always be addressed with existing recipes. So uh, when we can draw on precedents, and we should certainly do, but especially uh, when we are faced with these new challenges, uh, calling for new solutions, we should not be held back by lack of precedence. I think that's a very important point. We should not necessarily insist in trying to categorize behavior in, and, and I think it's a very important point. So we must understand the behavior from the business perspective and then assess how it interacts with uh, basic principles such as competition on the marriage, leveraging and so on and so forth. I think that's indeed a very important point. And your other point that maybe we have heard a little bit in terms of type one, type two. I also very much agree with that point because uh, we are animated by a mutual spirit to avoid false positives and false negatives because uh, on the one hand overzealous, but on the other hand undercooked enforcement are equally bad. And there are several reasons for that. I think it's very important. Coming back now to, to what uh, Bill said, he went a little bit into the intellectual debate, uh, the intellectual uh, DNA of US antitrust, uh, which intermingles uh, Chicago school perspectives with Harvard school contributions of Orida and, and, and Turner and Breyer. I will, I admit, I will not venture into now trying to come up with the intellectual DNA of EU uh, antitrust policy. But let me start by, by recalling the basic underlying principles, which may explain also to some extent why we have a somewhat different debate in Europe than in the US for the time being. First of all, uh, of course, we are uh, part of the EU single market project which already can explain to some extent quite some differences with the US enforcement. And in setting up our priorities, this means also that we take into account of that. But being 
part of that EU broader project, we do that in a, in a very concrete way by ensuring effective competition to the benefits of consumers. And so the protection of consumers has always been a cornerstone of our system and it's not a narrow concept. And there I think there is a difference because today you have quite a debate in the US about the consumer welfare standard, but which boils down probably to the definition of what is consumer welfare. While in Europe, uh, our, so it's embedded in the treaty, we have constant case law of the courts. Consumer harm has been identified by the courts, not only about negative impact on prices and, and output, but also on quality choice and innovation. And so, um, of, of course, importantly, it, it remains also uh, an, an economic concept, which does not encompass other uh, policy objectives, social justice, uh, full employment, but um, Clearly, it has in Europe never been identified with total welfare, and uh, probably therefore that it's less exposed to criticism. Does that not mean that we never had debates? In applying the principles in the 90s, there was the criticism of the formalism, which then led to a much more effects-based approach. Still today, uh, what, uh, let's say, practices should be assessed on a full-fledged uh, effects assessment or uh, what practices could or should benefit from presumptions or uh, safe harbor is still very much debated. Also, the courts come usefully come in. But uh, at least these two things already explain to some extent the differences between EU and US. Now, of course, there are other uh, historical, cultural, uh, institutional setup is different. Uh, excessive pricing, as it was clear in uh, some weeks ago at the OECD, clearly is doomed to remain a difference and a divergence between the EU and the US, because for us it's in the treaty itself. Um, so differences in the procedure setup may have an importance, because of course in the US you have much more private actions, while for Europe public enforcement remains uh, basically uh, the norm. but. What I would like to say is probably that all these differences should not necessarily be overplayed. So at the end of the day, because in the flyer I saw you say what is uh, the best system, I don't think we should go into these logics, what is the best system, or I think uh, at the end of the day uh, there is no single uh, superior competition law system uh, that everybody should strive to achieve. I think it's important, especially in these times, that we try to learn from each other, from the experiences. And there, Christina also mentioned what we see, then in particular as regards digital, it's crucially important today that together we try to better understand what is going on and to try to find uh, solutions, how best to tackle these digital challenges, because in, indeed the challenges are big. We are, uh, what we face today is markets prone to network effects, unprecedented economies of scale, uh, leveraging uh, high switching costs, strong lock-in effects, and all this may lead to entrenched dominant positions and tipping of the markets, where uh, also new business models where price is less important, uh, the same companies act as a supplier and as a retailer, so as a gatekeeper sometimes. Uh, we have to think of the other side and two-sided markets, which data. Data can be valued, but can also be a problem for access. Uh, so 
But what is essential, I think, here is that, uh, and this, I think, we have to some extent with the tools we have at our disposal, we have been able to catch these phenomena. If you think about data, we have had data cases where we looked into the issues which came up with uh, possibly adapted the theories of harm, also in the Google cases. So we, to some extent, we are able to catch these novel features, the complex issues. So I would advance that the primary challenge in, in probably in this era is to capture the relevant facts, but in a precise and timely manner so as to allow to intervene also timely. That is one of the challenges. But of course, we, there are huge challenges. We need to constantly be on our tools, reflect on new theories, new remedies, and so on. Uh, ensure that the tools and the procedures uh, allow us to conclude these investigations timely. Uh, also to look at these issues holistically, because competition law, and that is something you see very much, everybody is looking at competition authorities, but competition enforcement is not the answer to all the, the questions. Regulation has also to come in and complement, and a lot can be done by regulation as well. So uh, this is a common challenge we have, the US have, and it's good to see that on both sides of the Atlantic you have a reflection process which has been started. So if you look in the US, you have the FTC hearings, and to a large extent, the issues which are discussed there are issues we are also looking into. And they also try to, to, to find solutions to tackle the challenges. We have appointed uh, special advisors to look into these issues. They will come up with a report uh, in March. We have also launched a public consultation. Uh, we will have a conference in January. Also on the regulatory side, the, there is certainly a need for additional measures beyond competition policy in relation to digital. And the spring package, for instance, clearly illustrates that. So uh, at, in the US, as I said already, we had the FTC hearings. But I also see, for instance, that there is an increase, increased uh, curiosity from US policymakers. Uh, how EU is policing dominant firms, and you have an, a hearing, a Senate hearing on the 19th of December, for instance, looking into this, so making a comparison between how the EU and the US are looking at uh, behavior of dominant companies. And according to me, this illustrates a genuine interest also uh, there on, in competition law enforcement in the digital area. So a sign that there is an agreement that antitrust uh, let's say, can should be used to its fullest extent and, and possibilities. So, um, a last point maybe, I think it's important these days that uh, we should also, as enforcers, not allow uh, anyone to play competition authorities off against each other. We are facing uh, increasingly sophisticated companies, intelligent companies, we are entering uncharted territory, and there may be certain interests at play, and, and some may see a, a benefit in politicizing uh, alleged uh, enforcement divergences. I think we need to resist such temptations because this doesn't help anybody. Final point may be on The Economist. Uh, a lot of, because uh, Bill mentioned uh, the article in The Economist, I'm very happy to say that as far as Europe concerned, at least 
A lot of the points which are raised there, we are looking into. So they, they stress the importance to, to deal with digital issues, to take digital cases, which we have done with Google, with Amazon, with Microsoft, LinkedIn, for instance. They look at, um, they say that you have to come up with solutions or at least a framework for analyzing data, which we also have done. We have had several data cases and also data and algorithms is one of the topics uh, on the agenda of the conference, for instance, and also an issue our special advisors are looking into it. The increasing concentration levels, uh, Tommaso is looking into it. Uh, of course, the data are somewhat uh, incomplete so far. We are only going back to uh, the period of the financial crisis. And since then, there is no, let's say, clear trend of increasing concentration, but we are, uh, Tomazo is completing the research into that area, so very important also, um, but probably there we can go into detail later on. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, one question uh, before we move to Adonio. Um, we have seen that the approach of the European Commission was a little bit uh, excessive uh, in the sense that we go to touch issues related to privacy, uh, to uh, taxation, um, so that brings us to a sphere, as you said, um, of new challenges. And the question is why competition authorities to deal with those questions and not leave them to consumer protections, uh, tax authorities, uh, privacy bodies. Um, do we have a good coordination between the different authorities of, of to on topics of, of common interest? Yeah, so clearly, so when, when speaking about uh, privacy, for instance, when it is a, a pure privacy issue, certainly we as competition enforcers will not come in. The European Commission will not come in. But of course, it can be a parameter of competition. And to the extent that it is a parameter of competition, we will also look into that and maybe also in, into, involve it, in, in, include it in our assessment. And to that extent, we, we may also look at privacy because it can be a parameter of competition. But when it is a pure privacy issue, this we leave to the, to the uh, data protection regulators. On tax, I think there is also clearly uh, a dividing line. We only take care of selective tax advantages which can fall under the state aid rules. But of course, when it relates to pure tax policy issues, that is not for, for competition uh, authorities to deal with that. But that is again a very specific issue which is very much uh, a European one because we are probably one of the few authorities uh, having a state aid uh, regime. And by the way, this is also something which we should carefully think about, because if you think about a level playing field globally, probably we need also in that area stronger convergence. And uh, for instance, one could think that uh, a more uh, so the subsidy policy should, we, we are trying to put it higher on the agenda, G7, G20, OECD, because it is important. And one thing we, we, we are pushing for is indeed to have it, uh, to have some kind of reform also, or at least that in WTO, uh, subsidies policies are sharpened and there is more transparency. With this, we go to the OECD side, which is a more global perspective, and we are looking forward to hear your views on that. 
Well, thank you, Georgios, and good afternoon, everyone. I thought what I could do is really not get into this debate or divide between differences between U.S. Uh, and EU, but uh, as you said, take a little bit more of a, a bigger picture perspective and focus mostly on the challenges uh, that the digital economy has brought to the competition, uh, competition world. This is simply because the committee has been quite active in looking at a number of these questions over the last uh, uh, couple of years. And of course, the debate uh, is to some extent biased. I mean, the committee is uh, a group of enforcers, so I think the debate, uh, the discussion have been uh, not so conceptual. I mean, Chris mentioned the, the ongoing debate about consumer welfare, total welfare. This is something that has really emerged uh, sort of not predominantly in the discussion of the committee. <clears throat> but um, uh, the, the discussion has been very much uh, uh, practical in, in, in its nature. So what are the challenges that digitalization has brought mostly to competition enforcement? This is something uh, that of the issues that Christina uh, uh, mentioned before. Now, th there has been some debate uh, uh, on whether the legal standards that we have, that we have developed over you know, decades, uh, are fit for purpose when it comes to uh, uh, preserving, protecting competition, competition in digital and digital uh, markets. Uh, I, I have to say that there is a general uh, uh, understanding or agreement that, by and large, rules uh, are sufficiently flexible that it can be uh, applied in, uh, to, to challenges raised by uh, digitalization. There are, of course, uh, and I think Christina mentioned, you know, threshold issues, looking at assets rather than turnover. But by and large, the, the framework, the competition framework, I mean, most uh, sort of agencies uh, agree that it's uh, uh, fit for purpose. Uh, we have looked, of course, uh, to algorithms, and there is this very sort of, uh, the, at the moment, more maybe sort of philosophical discussion of whether, you know, tacit collusion, I mean, if algorithm starts engaging in tacit collusion on a wide scale, whether, you know, we have, uh, there is a gap or there is a, uh, a risk that enforcement cannot uh, address those issues, and, you know, that there are questions there, but nobody has really gone far to propose or suggest changes in normative changes to, uh, to address uh, what it seems to be for the moment uh, more of a theoretical uh, um, um, risk. Uh, more recently, we have also looked at uh, other issues. I mean, just finishing, we just finished uh, about two weeks ago a committee meeting where we looked at personalized pricing. So there's this discussion whether you know, discrimination and you know, the, the rules about discrimination should be adjusted to uh, the fact that now uh, pricing algorithms can really target uh, individual, each one of us with a different price. Uh, and there, a little bit, the, the, the discussion moved to is it fair rather than is it efficient? Uh, uh, so this fairness and, and other sort of purpose objectives of uh, uh, competition policy. But again, uh, not, not a lot of uh, uh, appetite to change legal standards. The, the, the bulk of the discussion has focused on the enforcement tools. So how do we apply the rules that we have uh, to face uh, challenges that digitalization uh, has applied. And, and platform is clearly uh, a feature of digital markets. Uh, this has been mentioned, and um, uh, we, we had a session, and you know, Christina was there, on multi-sided markets. It's platform of several sides, so the user side, uh, the, the advertisers, uh, content providers, or app developers. Uh, so how do you address, uh, how do you enforce competition, competition rules, which have been sort of developed in more traditional markets in this context? Uh, and how do you account for the different sides uh, of the platform? So there are challenges linked to market definition, how you measure market power, efficiencies, vertical issues. Uh, so again, very practical discussion. Do we need to change or to adjust rather the tools that we've developed to take into account uh, of these um, uh, uh, new phenomena? Uh, the other, I think, was also mentioned for the other challenge is this uh, 
uh, move uh, away from price, from objectively measurable, observable variable of competition. Uh, so the zero price economy uh, has uh, created some has raised questions for uh, uh, for enforcers, and then competition has moved. Uh, well, uh, beyond price to other variables, uh, you know, quality, variety, privacy, and how do competition authorities, first of all, can they um, uh, assess competition and impact of competition when these other variables have an important uh, role to play? And most of all, how do you measure them? I mean, I suppose uh, everything is measurable. Uh, I mean, economists can, can help with that. Uh, but uh, the more you move away from objectively measurable criteria like a price, uh, of course, you, you increase um, some extent discretion from agencies, and that's where I think uh, the business community also in the OECD has raised the question of predictability, legal certainty, uh, um, when, when again, you know, those uh, economic-based uh, measurable uh, variable of competition are not uh, at the core of the analysis of competition authorities. Um, I, I want to pick up on, on something that I think Chris said. I think one of the interesting uh, uh, outcome of this discussion on uh, digitalization and competition at the OECD is that has brought some a bit of a uh, humbleness in the approach of competition authorities. Th that's exactly what Chris said. Competition enforcement, competition law may not be the only tools available to address some of the challenges that in, in, uh, objectively are uh, are present. And that's where we are, being a sort of a government uh, organization, a multidisciplinary organization, we're trying to bring together discipline, different disciplines, and we just uh, had a joint meeting between the competition committee and the um, consumer policy committee, because a lot of these questions may be addressed uh, by con through consumer protection uh, tools, uh, maybe more uh, more flexible than the competition rules um, uh, competition rules are. But there are others, um, um, other regulators that can um, offer solution. You know, privacy, data protection regulators uh, beyond consumer protection. Um, so again, uh, the 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 needs of a more global and more rounded approach to the challenges uh, where competition authorities are just one of the actors and, and one of the uh, players in this um, uh, overall discussion. Um, one thought on, on uh, well, we have, maybe just to pick up on some of the things that both Chris and Christina said, there is an ongoing debate about uh, concentration and concentration measures at UCD as well. Some of the analysis and the studies that you know, have been mentioned in the US and the work that is ongoing here in Brussels has been brought into the UCD. UCD itself is doing some research uh, in this area, both on concentration, but also on, on profit margins or so the increase uh, uh, of, of markups going hand in hand with an increase of concentration. And this debate which uh, we had in the committee about uh, what, what do those measure means for an industry or an economy level and what they mean on a relevant market, uh, so for an antitrust perspective. So, because some of the implications that uh, of the general, these general studies, that there's been a failure of competition policy, maybe we will let too many mergers go through uh, unchecked, and so that's why we have now uh, they are very uh, co uh, concentrated markets. So there is an ongoing debate, and what that means, this, this measure and this uh, objective sort of facts means for competition for policy makers in general, including for uh, for competition uh, policy makers. Um, finally, maybe going back to this, uh, just one thought on the U.S. Uh, sort of EU uh, differences and divide, and why there is so much more sort of appetite in enforcing. Uh, competition rules in the digital environment uh, and digital markets here in Europe and in the U.S. And I thought that maybe um, it goes back to the sort of the Chicago school, the Chicago approach that there is um, in the U.S. much more uh, uh, trust that the market will self-discipline themselves, will correct themselves. 
sort of Europe has a more uh, sort of a long-standing history of, sort of intervention of governments in markets. Uh, so that may be what might maybe one reason for uh, more appetite, both on the enforcement side, but also on discussing possible regulatory uh, measures to, uh, you know, to discipline platforms or internet, uh, and so so that, that might be one one element of of the uh, of the of the discussion. Um, and I think I leave it at that. Um, I don't know if we can also have Bill back, or uh, if he is here for the question session. Could you inform me, please, from the control? Um, so before that, um, let me ask you a question before I go to the questions of the panel. What I have seen, um, uh, I have seen uh, uh, promoting by European industries and firms is the opinion that uh, we need to do something. Uh, hi, Bill. Can you hear us? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I have a general question and then we will have, uh, first of all, do you have any comments on what you heard by the panelists here? Uh, maybe maybe as we go to the discussion, I, I guess one, okay. one thought uh, uh, that, that I think runs across uh, 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 Christina's, Chris's, and Antonio's comments is that um, there, there's, a, there's a developing area of interest in the role that uh, historical analysis can play in shaping industry and in shaping agency uh, knowledge and capacity. One thing that's striking to me is that uh, a number of the phenomena we're talking about uh, have important uh, antecedents. Uh, uh, rapid rate of change, uh, major disruption to analysis. And I guess a general thought is that I think there are a number of instances in which agencies that are able to reflect uh, thoughtfully upon past experience and learn a lot about how to adapt to the current changes. Uh, so I, 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 think, I think embedded in a lot of agency experiences, uh, considerable possible insight about these issues, but I'm not sure every agency minds that what might be called big antitrust data to do the best job of, uh, of adapting. Um, uh, the other thought is that I, I agree with the comments of my colleagues that uh, uh, the future in so many ways is, uh, involves interdisciplinary inquiry involves uh, the application of, of multiple tools. It requires an investment in, uh, in building knowledge, uh, uh, which, which, which again is, is why uh, I find the FTC experience so fascinating because uh, although, although there's not quite the same tempo of uh, specific competition cases, uh, in its consumer protection and data protection role, uh, the FTC has amassed uh, quite a bit of experience studying the digital phenomena. And I guess the challenge for the FTC is how do you ensure that that knowledge developed and built uh, in the silo of your consumer protection or your data protection role informs the uh, formulation of uh, policy uh, across uh, across the entire, in the entire agency. So bringing all of that expertise together uh, in an agency that has all of those tools, or many of them, uh, uh, is a way in which uh, I think the FTC can make a major contribution in the future. I think the proceedings uh, that Chris referred to uh, are starting to point out some of those connections. Thank you, Bill. Christina. Uh, I, I just wanted to jump in. Bill, I 
is always agree with much of what you say. I think that particularly the FTC hearings, uh, which I had the privilege to attend, uh, are turning out to be uh, very inspirational in the sense that uh, um, the, the topics and the selection of speakers has been tremendous, and I think a lot of insights are coming out of that. That said, I think I also agree with your uh, invitation to agencies to mine the wisdom of experience and the data they have. That is very true when it comes to sort of the standard economy generally, right? And I think, I think we all agree that much more uh, can and should be done in terms of retrospectives. Um, we know that there are resistances to doing it because, of, of course, firms don't want to sponsor these kind of res retrospectives and agencies themselves. I mean, I've heard Tommaso say it, and I've seen it, my, you know, my own experience has been, of course, that there is a bit of a reluctance to put out there uh, a study that says the merge that you actually presided on actually was uh, not uh, terribly competitive, notwithstanding remedies. So I think that there is certainly much to be done in the sort of broad economy to learn from that experience. My own personal anecdotal experience in mergers, having probably done more than 200 in my life, is that they have very little to say that's good because I have I have done several and I cannot really very consciously point to very many benefits that attach to many of them. Uh, I think there has been um, too much willingness to clear them with remedies that frankly were hopeful, don't work, based on some hope, you know, and a pray that entry would occur, and they it didn't. There is evidence in the UK that a number of deals cleared on the basis of potential entry, future entry, has have not materialized. Now, I would separate that, and I'll, I'll finish here, from the digital world, because this is really uh, an area where uh, the, the sort of the experience, the past experience we can mine is by definition more limited. The issues that we are facing are novel and they are more unprecedented. Although I think we cannot also go too far. I mean, there are uh, some who say, look, we've dealt with industries with big network effects, massive economies of scale and scope, telecoms, and we've uh, piece by piece broken down the bottlenecks and we've addressed that. So it's not beyond the will of man to do this in this case. But there is a sense, I think, of great urgency in this digital space because there is a notion that, as I said before, a number of these markets have tipped, and as you say, the competition tool is is ultimately relatively limited. Uh, it can only address things exposed. It takes forever, and the remedies are pretty ineffectual. You end up with an Article 7 decision that says, bad dog, don't do it again. And then the asymmetry of information is so pervasive that, of course, the company can kind of do something which is totally circumventing uh, the concern. And there are no reputational effects that really come and attach to you because, because the, so the deterrence really isn't there. So I think uh, we have a problem both in terms of the law, which is too much based on a common law sort of approach in which you can only do things where there is precedent and the court have, 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 and on the part of the economics. I mean, we still don't have good models of innovation, for example. We have a lot of work to do, but at the same time, this is urgent. And I think, um, you know, this is something where, again, I think interim measures uh, and, and a, a, a conscious decision that certain things cannot wait uh, would be a way to go, as well as using other example instruments that that are probably better suited.
Thank you, Christina. Uh, with this, let's open because we need also to hear your voice. Uh, questions, uh, please identify yourself and use the microphone. Yeah, there is a question there and then there. Let's collect some questions and we, uh, we respond collectively. Please, go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh, great. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Michael Axon, MLEX. Uh, both my questions for Chris. Uh, just on the, you mentioned all the work that's coming through next year. You have the January conference and you have the special advisors producing this report on issues like data and algorithms. Um, but it's, there's also something else in the pipeline, which is the working paper on uh, reviewing how the commission reviews mergers. Uh, particularly in relation to transaction value thresholds. I know there's a lot of debate around this at the moment. Um, so I'd just be interested to hear, can we expect that roughly the same time next year? Is there any sort of timeline on that? Because it was announced some months ago or it came out at a conference and it's sort of gone quiet. Um, so an update on that would be good. And then on this point you made about um, the, the problem of playing competition authorities off against each other. Um, one of the more public sort of spats recently has been uh, this issue over the DOJ initiative, um, the multilateral framework, the MFP. Um, and there's been a, you know, it's gone sort of quiet since the OECD uh, met last month. Um, and Roger Alford at the time from the DOJ uh, was saying that he was hopeful that there could be progress on that issue. I mean, this is something that obviously doesn't look fantastic if, the, if there's this apparent major division on, on, a, on an essential issue of procedure and, and I think that the major discriminants over how the institutional framework would work. So again, I'd be interested to know whether there's been any sort of progress in that area as well. Thank you. We move there to the question to Alec. Alec Burnside at, at Deckert. Um, Bill, good to see you on the screen. Uh, the uh, first question to, to you, uh, you laid out uh, all the reasons why we need further inquiry, things didn't happen, but you didn't offer us your own informed speculation as to uh, prevalent causes, uh, each case no doubt having its own, uh, its own characteristics, but what is the reason do you think that uh, enforcement has uh, has slipped in the way you described? Um, Europe, uh, Chris, is is lauded uh, by Bill as the uh, as the great leader, and yet is pilloried uh, equally within Europe for going so slowly on cases that it ought to be doing more. Uh, it's a, <coughs> a curious position for you to be in. Um, what are the practical solutions actually for getting? Uh, more quickly, uh, interim measures uh, is one easy answer, but that has its own uh, complications. And then a, a thought generally to to all of you, uh, consumers don't have uh, an active voice uh, in their own right in these, uh, these many debates, but we're meant to be protecting them. Uh, the CMA uh, in the UK has a system of uh, super complainants speaking on behalf of consumers, gives them uh, some voice. Uh, do you see a way of uh, getting that voice better into uh, the, the cases agencies are handling? Thank you, Alec. And we have a question there. Hi, my name is Bert Haig from BVA. I have a question concerning uh, the digital topics we've uh, approach here several times and in particular the relationship between uh, competition policy and uh, regulation uh, or competition law and regulation potential regulation um, because we've seen that uh, the current uh, 
competition approach sometimes not enough. Uh, you have mentioned, for example, uh, uh, Chris, uh, you have mentioned the platforms. Uh, platforms that can be vertically integrated and therefore, therefore um, well, prevent um, competition on the retail side, you mentioned that. Uh, so, um, could there be um, uh, some value for regulation on, um, uh, for a platform neutrality or something like that? And the second point concerning, um, concerning the value of data that you mentioned, Christina, that sometimes is locked in, in uh, those large platforms. Uh, what solutions are there to lock up this data, to give uh, uh, it, uh, to make it valuable for the consumers instead of uh, leaving the entire value to those uh, large uh, uh, platforms? Would some form of data sharing regulation make sense uh, for you in this sense? Thank you. Uh, so let's go to the responses and we close. Uh, Bill, do you want to start with you? Uh, on Alice's uh, excellent question, uh, my, my main explanation for the more limited uh, U.S. role is, is, the, is the concern about doctrinal barriers. I don't have a confident uh, explanation for why the FTC backed away from uh, its Google matter. But I, in, in asking acquaintances uh, who are willing to talk a bit about it, uh, my main sense is that they felt that the gauntlet of the appellate process, ultimately leading up to the Supreme Court, uh, would, uh, would be unfavorable for them. That, that uh, bringing the case was to engage in an endeavor that was more likely than not to fail. Uh, and I think that that doctrinal hurdle uh, is probably the, the main concern, uh, and that's my, my, my general judgment about uh, what most of the uh, the extension of the U.S. system, certainly in the case of the Federal Trade Commission, but I had a footnote to that, and, and that is, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps those of us who are so conditioned in watching uh, that development unfold over time, being aware of how the courts have, have limited the, the center of the target, uh, how, the, how the center of the target uh, has, uh, has uh, narrowed and narrowed to a smaller and smaller dot. Maybe we're too cautious. Maybe we're too risk-averse. Uh, and, and maybe that's an area in which you need um, uh, literally a new generation of policymaker uh, that is willing to climb that hill, even though others going up have seen uh, the remains of people who did make it for some time. So you need, it could, it could be that you need, uh, uh, that some of us, and I include myself in that group, are too conditioned by what has not worked uh, to be quite bold enough in, uh, in pursuing other matters in life. So primary cause I, I attribute to uh, the constriction of, of U.S. doctrine, uh, secondary cause, uh, uh, I, I, I can see that uh, uh, those of my age and maybe younger uh, might be so daunted by the, the difficulty of the path ahead that we don't, uh, that we don't try enough. Thank you, Bill. Uh, further comments, reactions? Chris? 
the merger control. So indeed, uh, we have done this evaluation. Uh, we have had a public consultation also. Um, overall, the result of that, the overall uh, picture we see is that the merger regime works well, let's say. Uh, so there does not seem to be uh, a need for fundamental overhaul. Uh, there are two issues uh, where there may be room for further work. The question is a little bit whether they uh, are of such a nature that they would merit reform of the merger regulation. One of them is simplification, the other one is thresholds. On the thresholds, on the one hand, you have people who, the majority, I would say, uh, come, came with uh, that there is no enforcement gap. Um, and that in any event uh, the Commission will get these transactions through the referral system. Uh, on the other hand, it is true that uh, the referral can only work to the extent that these transactions are notifiable at national level. So, uh, therefore, we follow with uh, a lot of uh, interest what happens now in Germany and Austria, for instance, where these new thresholds have been introduced. We are also completing uh, further internal research on the topic, and so this should help us to come to a conclusion, but I cannot pinpoint to a date yet, So, but the jury on that one is still out. On uh, the issue on the MFP, so uh, indeed, you know, our position, we do consider, so first of all, let me uh, underline here that there is no divergence on the substance. We fully share the objective to have uh, due process, so higher standards of high standards of due process at a global scale. So that is not the issue, but we do consider that we should embed this in the ICN, which is uh, an existing fora, rather than to create a new forum. So this is the discussion which is going on, and again, I cannot really tell you when, when this will be solved or when there will be uh, a final view. On the issue of um, practical solutions to go more quickly, uh, interim measures may be a solution, but on the other hand, one should be careful because, of course, this is quite intrusive also. And so, especially with this uh, new phenomena, it's not always that clear whether, uh, indeed, it, you, it, the, first of all, the threshold in terms of case law for us uh, at the court is extremely high. So to meet that threshold is already not obvious. And secondly, of course, it's a quite intrusive measure. And so especially with regard to the new phenomenon, it's not that obvious. On the other hand, where I think we can do better is probably uh, a better use of presumptions. Uh, of course, uh, presumption is uh, a question of burden shifting. So when there is uh, factual evidence which may be of such a kind that it requires a, uh, an explanation of the company, we should be much probably uh, more quickly turn the burden to the company, and then it can shift back to the authority. But at least it, 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 it introduces more discipline on both sides to come up much more quickly with arguments and evidence. And so that can help to, uh, to um, let's say, make the procedures faster. It's not a shortcut, it's not ignoring evidence, but uh, it's basing ourselves of, of, on general knowledge and experience. On the um, uh, 
Um, yeah, on the question of regulation, so there, in fact, we have, uh, you have seen, so you have the, the, the platform to business regulation proposal, uh, which is there and, and which uh, promotes fairness and transparency. Uh, so there is the proposal which is on the table. I can, uh, this is for the time being heavily discussed also in the European Parliament and in the Council. So uh, I don't know what will be the outcome of that, so it's a bit difficult for me to pronounce myself uh, on the further development on that file. Just a very so to reaction on the MFP. I mean, there is a strong interest from ICN. OCD has also done a fair amount of work in the past, so there is interest in looking at whether there is a scope for finding consensus on general principles, procedural principles that can be then informed national sort of reforms eventually. On the point, I think Alec mentioned the role of consumers and giving consumers a voice. We don't do enforcement, but we have recently brought consumers into the competition committee to discuss precisely the issue mostly related to digitalization. So in that respect, we have Consumers International and uh, DEUC, uh, who are part, very act, uh, an active part in the policy debate, at least, uh, on, on, uh, on these issues. Uh, on the, maybe one final thought on the on remark on the regulation. Uh, we have seen that maybe sort of some of the proposals are to give, empower consumers uh, back to sort of control the, their data, so data portability, uh, transparency, uh, so that they can make uh, informed choice of which platform to use depending on how they, their data is used by the platform itself. So that's uh, sort of the, um, one of the thoughts behind regulation in, in this. One last thing? Yes. Uh, can, I, can I come back on uh, Alex's uh, question about consumer voices, which I, which I, I yeah, Yes, please. Please, please. Um, Certainly in the U.S. I mean, the super complaint mechanism in the in the in the U.K. is a very interesting mechanism for marshalling those. Uh, in the U.S., the, uh, uh, the 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 strength and diversity of the consumer advocacy community with the NGO ecology that supports them is pretty strong. But, but I think a question that comes up more and more with consumer voices is in what, in what capacity consumers are speaking. Uh, increasingly, I see delivered a mixed message, which is I like competition when I buy things, but I'm not sure about it when I, when I go to work. Uh, as a worker, I, I, I would like a better wage. I would like uh, uh, the, the quieter life that comes from working with an employer with market power. Um, I don't like competition that takes my job away, that turns my community upside down. Um, I, I see more and more in the, in the discussions from consumers, I, I see especially in the modern debate about what the standard of competition policy should be, that the consumers, the citizens who are speaking, um, in many ways are schizophrenic about competition. Great when I buy things, not so great in my role as a worker. And that is a hard thing, I think, for competition policy to sort out. I just wanted to up, pick up a couple of points. Interim measures, I, I think we ought to be collectively a little bit more courageous in all of this. Interim measures, yes, of course, the standard rhetoric is they're terribly intrusive, you don't want to do it. But, you know, let me give you an example, and I have an interest in this, but, you know, um, uh, things like first click free, for example, a practice that the publishing industry by Google uh, universally hated, um, Google abandoned it. 
you know, unilaterally, right? So you can take that as a possibility of a case in which there was a conduct whose anti-competitive effects were unclear, had not been investigated, were beginning to be investigated, and it was dropped. To me, that is evidence that that wasn't a vital practice that was threatening, uh, if abandoned, uh, Google's own existence. It is something that, if it had come to an interim measure, would have been okay. You say to a company, don't do this, we're not sure, we're going to look into this, but hey, we're going to tell you we think it's okay. So I think we ought to be, because this, why do we care about all of this ultimately? It's about incentive that we provide for companies to continue to do the, the to innovate. And we've been in this debate for 20 years. Microsoft argued 20 years ago, if you mandate interoperability, else there will be terrible in, in effects on incentive to innovate. Microsoft is the biggest capitalized ma uh, company today, and uh, uh, the, there hasn't been any indication that, uh, of course, the, that that deterred innovation. So I think we are far too timid and far too concerned about tampering with these delicate ecosystems. The ecosystem is the ecosystem of the ones who are not innovating because they are withering in the shade and they are being trampled on. So let's consider that. Now, next point, the data stuff. I think the debate has moved enormously from an initial discussion in which, you know, some parties like Microsoft were saying, oh, you know, you got too much data, Google wanted for myself. And Google say, oh, it's like the wind, it's like the sand, it's like the sunshine, go get yourself, which never kind of went anywhere as a discussion. Now there is a much greater awareness that um, you, you have barters in, in, in these kind of uh, sort of trades. You, you are talking about a price of zero, but you're giving something up, and there is a barter. And we need to think creatively about solution. There are private sector solutions that are sort of being suggested. They're creative, they're probably a bit mad, but you know, the kind of things that are out there, data unions, intermediary of, uh, of personal data, people who can go and negotiate the value of our data with platform and extract, extract some money. That is a, an idea that would suggest that we can make more informed choices if we get money back as a result of our, of our, of our data, uh, data handing over. So I think we ought to, you know, to take Bill's last point, uh, you know, get up that hill and forget the fact that there have been some sort of casualties. Get up that hill and do something a bit creative. That's uh, my Don't uh, misunderstand me. I didn't say <laughs> we are very much looking into the possibility of interim measures. Mm. So we are certainly not not shy. I think also when we are, <laughs> for instance, we have been heavily criticized uh, uh, when we came up with our innovation theory in Dupont. I think this shows that we are not shy. No, not shy. Uh, Antonio mentioned yes. Sometimes it's difficult because you cannot measure. So we have used proxies there like uh, R and D budgets, uh, uh, patent uh, patenting activity, internal documents, and so on. So we are certainly not shy. But uh, I think that would be go too far also when it comes to interim measures, when we are ready to, to look carefully into it. I'm just saying there are, uh, it's not always that easy. And, and, uh, there so are cases easy. and cases. With this, um, I would like to thank all the speakers uh, for being here. And uh, Bill, thanks for waking up so early to be with us. And uh, please, I invite the audience to thank the speakers for being here. And uh, that's the end. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.